before we begin with our message, let's, uh, let's pray a little bit, and then we can uh, get into God's Word. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we want to again thank you that we can gather as a body of believers, that we can be gathered at the foot of the same cross, that we can be in love with the Savior that saved us, that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That goes for each and every one of us, that while we were shaking our fist at you, saying, leave us alone, you exposed yourself to us in a way that was irresistible. And we accepted you as Lord and Savior, and because of that, a transaction was made that you saved us, and for that we will be eternally grateful. So thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you for making us whole. So Father, we want to pray for those that are in need, whether it's the Brian Lane or Pauline Lane, Barrett Mitchell, Cheryl Marson, or the, the Hoagland family. Father, each of them stand in need of your special grace, whether they be, they be um, getting along in age, whether they have various infirmities. But Father, we bring each one of these before the, the throne of grace that they, uh, they may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, we want to be with the, ask you to be with the Fry family as well as they have just suffered the loss of a grandfather, we ask that you would be very near to that family, that you would comfort them. And this is a whole new chapter in life for this family as well as others that many of us are probably aware of, other people that have, that have died in the community, and it's a whole new chapter in life. Father, we ask that your grace and your mercy would extend to these families. And Father, we ask as well for the teachers and the students across this nation, and, and what a difficult thing to, to have to monitor that and to make sure these kids get taught and all of the, the details, there's just a host of details, and many of which we're not even aware of. But when you're dealing with technology, you deal with glitches, and then you have people's schedules, and it goes on and on, and the bottom line is we would like to have our kids educated properly. So, Father, we ask that COVID would, would go away and we'd be able to have these, these schools opened again. And kids could get together and there could be a sense of normalcy again. So Father, as we dig into your word, we ask that you would bless it, and that the words that go out from this, the front would be blessed, that they would bring glory and honor to you and encouragement to these people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning was one of those unusual mornings, and it doesn't happen very often. I usually like to think that I'm fairly organized, and I was. I was really organized. The trouble is, is when I organized everything else we be talking about, we would have been here till 1 o'clock. And I figured I would have had a desertion on my hands. So I decided to, to retool the message, and I had Jenny was great, gracious to come in just a few minutes earlier, and she made some, some copies. And the first first one that I'm going to kind of go over, you can kind of ignore your bulletin, is I'm going to be going over this one, the fear, worry, and anxiety, the accepted sins. I'm going to be going over that, and then the secondary part of it is that one that is a two-sided document that just has fear at the top of it. And for the sake of... Com yes? Did, does everybody have this fear, worry, and anxiety? Connie doesn't. And do you also have the fear handout. If you don't, Jenny will, will tend to that, so you'll each have one. Uh, for the sake of conversation, let's say that there 
is no one in, in this audience that struggles with fear, worry, and anxiety. We'll, we'll just say that just for the sake of conversation. But I'll bet you there is in your extended family or somebody that you know that is caught up in this and it can just grip you and it can be really difficult to overcome. So the reason I wanted to have these outlines in your hand there's several reasons, but one of them that I think is a bit on the humorous side, but it gets my point across, is years ago, John MacArthur, he's a terrific theologian that's known you know, worldwide, and he gave the, a message one time, and he said, you know, when I give this message, you know, and I put all this work into it, and I give it to the people, I liken it to all of you having a glass. And when he gets done with his message, the glass is half full. Maybe it's three-quarters full. That's how much information you've got in this, in this glass. And he says, and I really feel good if you can make it to your car, and there's, it's quarter full by the time you get there. And meaning, you could say that I gave the greatest sermon known to man two weeks ago. What was it? And I realized that. I don't even remember. I mean, shoot, I don't even, so how can I expect you to remember? So I figure if I can give you something that's printed out and you have it, it's a lot easier to remember and maybe to look on it and kind of ponder on it. But if I give you just a whole avalanche of information, it may be the most wonderful message ever, but yeah, I don't really have anything to show. So I wanted to put something in your hands, which I think is a little bit helpful. So the, the first part is, Fear, worry, and anxiety is some sins are so common among Christians that they appear to be acceptable behavior. Worry and fear would certainly be near the top of the list, and some realize it is wrong and try to hide it, to hide their worry by giving it other titles such as concerned, troubled, disturbed, interested, or bothered. And worry defined, the Greek is, it's a, it's a two-part combination, but it means a divided mind. That's what worry means. And in the Bible, this particular word is translated worry, anxious, anxiety, care, or cares. That's how the Bible translates this particular word. And what I want to make a, a real point of getting across is planning that acknowledges God's sovereignty. Planning that acknowledges God's sovereignty is not worry. That is not worry. If you want to do your financial planning, if, you, if you're planning to pay off your house or to pay off a car or to do some sort of a, I'm going to do a long-term planning, but you recognize the sovereignty of God in this. It may go up, it may go down, I may have difficult times. That's not worry. That's called good stewardship. That's good planning. So I don't want you to get, get those two confused. Worry is an over-anxious concern regarding the future and things that keep a person from, from fulfilling their current biblical responsibility. Worry is concerns about the future and things that are really important to you that you want to have happen or you don't want to have happen. The second is the... I want to be clear on this, so I want to just, let's just say it right out. Worry is sin. Worry is sinful. In Matthew 6, and you can see at the top of those, there's two parallel passages. There's Matthew 6, 
and there's loop 12. They basically talk about the same thing. One is just slightly different than the other, but we're going to be looking at the Matthew 6 one when it comes to this particular outline. And in Matthew 6, it says three separate times, do not worry. Verse 25, 34, and uh, rather, um, Uh, 31. It's verses 25, 31, and 34. It says, do not worry. Now, I take this, and I suspect you do too, you take this command that if you do worry, it is a disobedience to the command. If you look at Philippians 4, it says, be anxious for nothing. That is a command. Be anxious for nothing. And we're going to be looking at it a little bit later on. So, at the heart of worry, at the heart of worry is distrust of God's promises and providence. There is a distrust of the protection and the care of God. That is at the heart of worry. Christ teaches in Matthew 6, he talks about worry, and he gives two roots of worry and the cure for each. And I'm just going to tell you what those two roots are. The two roots of worry is you want to have, or a person wants control of the future, and the other root is they're laying up treasures on earth. That is the two roots of worry, is they're laying up treasures on earth, they want to have control of the future, and the cure for each is God knows what we need, and God tells us to lay up treasures in heaven. So now we're going to go to the third one. Worry is idolatry, and the solution is repentance. Idolatry means, idolatry means worship of someone or something other than the living God. That's what idolatry means. It's giving yourself to some person, a goal, an ideal, a concern, or some object rather than Christ. Or people would say, well, whoa, whoa, you know, I'm, I'm holding these objects as important, but I'm also holding Christ as important. Well, you got a difficulty because in Matthew 6 it says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or mammon, or some object or thing of your affections. Your affections cannot go in two particular ways. So, worry is idolatry. It is allowing your concerns over the future and the things to be more important than thinking and acting God's way. God tells you to do it a particular way, but your worry, fear, and anxiety take over so that you are concerned with the future in an inordinate way. Worry expresses idolatry in the heart in three ways, with things, goals, and people. Now, this maybe you've never heard of this expression before, that uh, idols of the heart. That expression, especially in biblical counseling, comes from Ezekiel 14. It talks about the leaders of the church. In fact, I have it right here. 
Ezekiel 14, it says, Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me, in front of Ezekiel. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them. And then he goes on and he talks about it and even brings it up again about that they have idols of the heart. It's something that is there that is more important than who God is and what God says. And make no mistake, these, these elders of Israel were religious. They were absolutely religious. In fact, they were coming to the prophet to Ezekiel to get a word from the Lord. That, that sounds really good. That sounds like a really good thing to do. And the Lord says, yeah, they're sitting there, but they really don't care what I have to say because something else is a monument in their heart that is before me. I'm second or third or fourth. And he calls them out on it. So that's where that expression, idols of the heart, come from. The things you worry about reveal those idols of the heart. Things that you and I worry about. So you may have an inordinate uh, thought life regarding your health or money or success, your, your crops, your children. You may have an inordinate amount of, uh, of time given to what do people think of me? But what do they think of me? Or, or getting a promotion or finding a mate or having children, or grandchildren, or what, what is, whatever, however that manifests itself, if it is displacing God, that is an idol of the heart. Genuine concern, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. This is an over-concern for something that replaces primary concern for God. Jesus declares that you cannot serve God or something else simultaneously. In fact, you'll read in Mark 12, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That is the commandment, the first and the greatest commandment. A warrior needs to be called to master his false God and the false things that replace God as primary. The third one, worry is unbelief, and the solution is faith. Jesus described worriers, if you remember it in Luke 12 and Matthew 6, he says, O you of little faith. That's how he characterized worriers. They are people, he didn't say no faith, he said little faith. And he's talking with the disciples who were front and center at the Sermon on the Mount on the hill. So that's who he's talking to, who we would think would be, you know, big in the faith. I mean, these guys are, are the big as, as big as it gets. But in this particular context, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. Worry is the fruit of remaining unbelief and doubt in a Christian. And Jesus calls on us to focus on what did we, we talked about last week, we focus on if God will take care of the birds, if he will take care of our needs, if he will take care of the lilies of the field, 
He talks about all these things. If he wants us to focus on that, that if he'll care for these things, we are far more important than those, and we need to shift our thinking in a different way. And if you go through uh, Matthew chapter 6, which you don't have to, but I'm just going to briefly just highlight a couple, a couple points. We need to focus on that God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. In verses 31 and 32, it says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans ran, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need him. Omniscience, God knows everything. God knows that you need these things. So he tells us, focus on that. Also focus on God's promises. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Focus on that. Focus on God's omniscience, on his promises, and focus on your responsibilities for today. And don't allow them to slop over into tomorrow and next week and next month. It says, verse 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So I want to summarize these three. Because I really wanted to, like I said, to give you something and kind of give you a logical basis on what Scripture says. The idolatry and unbelief of worry is to be replaced by a worship of faith in God, and this will manifest itself in a lifestyle marked by, and I'm going to be looking briefly at the Philippians passage, Philippians 4, is by right praying. It says in Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So, what is this passage, if you were to, to diagram it out and you just dissect it and all of its little parts, what God is saying here is he's saying, confess your worry as sin, absolutely, but also in your prayer life, be pleading and praying about just general things, like we did earlier. We praise God. We ask him to be part of the service. We ask that he be glorified. We bring a bunch of names before him. We talked about some people that have died. We talked about the students. These are general things. But also, you bring before him prayers about worry, and you repent from that. And in our day and age, there's not a lot of talk about sin and repentance, and there should be. And I'll tell you why. When you call something sin, and you call people to repent of sin, that gives the sinner hope. It gives him hope. If you say, you know, you're a worrier, and it's, it's sinful, and it really sucks to be you. I, I don't know what's going to happen to you on the day of judgment, but it's not good. So, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do. If you call it sin, you call people to repentance, it gives you hope. And that hope is forgiveness, ultimately salvation. So that's the point, is you want to have this progression. And the first part of that progression is right praying. The second one is right thinking. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true and noble 
right, pure, lovely, admirable. If it's excellent or praiseworthy, it says, think about these things. It's not a mental game that Scripture is playing. What it's saying is discipline your mind so that you think about good and wholesome things. And this is a real big sampling of good and wholesome things. And it says, you know what? Whatever is true and right and all these things, think about these things. And some of your versions would say dwell on these things. Either one would work. But it says fill your mind with these things. And if they don't fit this category, don't think about those things. It's a discipline of your mind. So you have right praying. You have right thinking. In verse 9, you have right acting. Verse 9 says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. In other words, do it. Do it. So we can talk about all these wonderful biblical truths we can talk about right praying, right thinking, right acting. We can talk about worry is sinful, worry is idolatry, worry is unbelief. And you go, oh, that was a terrific sermon. Did it change your life at all? Not really. Scripture says, do these things, put them into practice. And if you do, you have huge blessing in front of you. If you don't, your life is going to be in turmoil to whatever degree you're a worrier. So, that was the first portion that I wanted to talk about. And the second portion that I wanted to go over is this handout on fear. And I wanted to do kind of a brief overview on this, and I don't expect to camp on this a terribly long time, uh, but I did want to bring it up. I have in your handout, you'll see that there are various passages that are in bold print. I kind of thought those were important, and I'll just read them. I have them typed out in here in front of me, and as I get there, I'm just going to read those as they apply. But starting at the very top, the introduction, you could say, worry, or rather fear per se, is not wrong. Per se, per se means by itself. You could say, fear by itself is not wrong. True or false? Well, there is right fear, there is wrong fear. So I want to go over just a few of these. In Scripture, Jesus is never said to be afraid. He, he prays to the Father that the, the cup would pass from him, but it was never portrayed as fear. Uh, the fear of God is the one fear that removes all other fear. You could say, you could replace fear with the respect the admiration, the worship of God is the one thing that removes other fears. God warns us, some, somebody with a pocket protector and thick glasses must have figured this out, but God warns us over 450 times in the Bible not to fear. Somebody did the counting. Trust me, I didn't check it. But I'll take his word for it. We could maybe just agree that a lot of times, Scripture says, do not fear. Genesis 3 is the first occurrence of fear in the Bible. And that's when, when uh, God came into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? And he says, I hid. 
because I was naked and afraid. And, and God says, who told you? Who told you naked? So that was the first time we see the word afraid or fear. And fear is a feeling of anxiety and agitation caused by the presence or nearness of danger, evil, pain, or other things. Okay, that's what causes fear. So, fears that are right. Well, the fear of God is a right thing. In Ecclesiastes 12, it says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. It is good and right to fear God. You should do that. Another fear that is right is fear of danger. 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. I mean, a healthy fear of danger is a good thing because your body was created by God and he expects you to take care of it. It says, in fact, it says here, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so take care of it. And there should be a fear of danger to take care of that temple. The third one is fear of guilt. That is a good thing. That is a good and healthy thing. Proverbs 28. The wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as lions. If you have guilt, you, you are unstable. You're always thinking somebody has found out. If you are righteous, you have no reason to fear. You don't have, you don't have to turn and run. You can stand your ground. Summary. Fear is right, good and proper when it moves us towards God and motivates biblical behavior. That's a summary of when fear is right. But there's also when fear is wrong. Fear of man and not God is wrong. John 12. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith. For fear, they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Fear of man and not God is a wrong type of fear. Fear of things temporal rather than eternal. And 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 talks about that. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring the light when it is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time each will receive his praise from God. And one more. Fear of things we cannot change. Those are all, these three, and there could be more. But these three are fears that are wrong. Fear of man, fear of things temporal, and fear of things that we cannot change. What it tries to do is break down an emotion when people can be overcome with it and say, where do you fit in this continuum? What is it, what is it that you could say is the idol of your heart? How does it express yourself? And we're going to for sure. Next week we're going to end this and we're, we're going to talk about some, some tools that can be used 
to overcome fear, worry, and anxiety, but I didn't think that I could fit them all in today because there was just too much to do. Finally, keys to overcoming sinful fear is develop a strong God focus. And you can see the verses there. I can, you can look those up on your own. And deal with guilt biblically. Develop love as the antidote of fear and view fearful situations as opportunities to grow for God's glory. And probably the biggest is meditate on and memorize key scriptures. There was a couple reasons I wanted to give you this. Is that I felt it was a good summary document regarding fear. It gave supportive biblical verses. And there are some people that don't want to talk about fear, worry, and anxiety. And that's fine. But I wanted to put selected resources in there because many of them are really, really good. And on your own, or you can, you can give this information to somebody that you may feel needs it, those are just a, a small sampling of some of the, what we call the big hitters that address fear, worry, and anxiety. So if this is something that is useful to you, I wanted to get it because you could never write all this stuff down and, and have it fairly accurate by the time that we got done with the service. So. We have went over last week, we went over Luke 12. This week we went over Luke, uh, Matthew 6, albeit pretty quickly. But I gave you some um, definitions of worry, sinful, the, the, whole, the whole outline. If this, if this is something that is in your ballpark, these should be helpful tools to address it. Otherwise, you'll be better equipped. This is this expression that I have used with people is, Granted, I've got the training experience to be a biblical counselor, and this is stuff that you run across. But this is what I would tell each and every one of you, without exception, really strongly. All of us, all of us here, all of us at First Reformed Church, all of us at Faith Reform, every single one of us are counselors. Every single one of us. The only question that remains is, what kind of a biblical counselor are you? Biblical counselor is applying God's words to the problems of life. That's, that's what it is. You're taking, this is what God's word says, this is how it's applied to life. Every single one of us are a counselor. Have you not had people come up to you and ask your opinion, what do you think of this, or what do you think of that, or what, is, what does this verse mean, or what does that mean? They're asking. You are a counselor. It's just, what kind of a counselor are you? It is absolutely true. And the day that that struck me, I went, ooh. If I'm a counselor, I go, it's like fourth down and 20, punt. I go, it, I'm glad I'm not you, because you're talking to me and I got nothing. And I go, this is a travesty. And what I have seen in biblical preaching, and I can say this because I've been, in the, uh, been watching either in your position for 50 years, 60 years, or I've been in this position and I see we're really, really good at teaching the Bible and then you have all the problems of life over here and there's a real struggle to intersect those two. There's a real, real problem. Is we can say what the Bible says and we can say what all kinds of problems that people have, but to intersect those is often, at least it was for me, it was really tough to intersect them to apply the Bible to real situations. So the reason I'm going off is because you guys are counselors. What kind of a counselor are you? And that's why I wanted to give you written stuff so you would have it on hand should the need arise. 
we're now going to shift gears. It is, it is Communion Sunday. And we're going to be talking just briefly about the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ made on the cross. And I want to read just a, a, a couple verses from the Gethsemane experience in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. It means the oil press or the wine press. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And this is what I want to talk about. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And he went away and a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The question I want to, I just want to talk about just very briefly as I try on this progression of communions to bring up different aspects of the journey towards the cross that, that Jesus Christ experiences. And why is it Jesus is praying at this hour, at the twelfth hour, that this cup passed from him? Because, after all, he had covenanted, there had been an agreement sometime in eternity past. We don't know him, but sometime there was, a, there was an event that occurred that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had the counsel of God together, and it was decided that Jesus Christ would die for the sins of man. Somewhere back then, and now the time has arrived and could we not say that surely Jesus always knew the cup of God's wrath was an unavoidable aspect of his atoning work, meaning of his buying back, of his atoning means the paying of a penalty. Okay, Didn't Jesus know that from eternity past that of course he had to do this? So why at this late hour... Is Jesus saying, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Well, all of it is true that there was a covenant in way a long time ago in the Godhead that Jesus Christ would die for the sins of man. But now Jesus is talking as a fully human individual and I believe Christ had to be feeling the burden of this sacrifice in a way he had never felt before. The man Jesus Christ was approaching his hour and all his normal human feelings would have been intensified as the hour approached. And the full weight of sorrow and dread was welling up in him as he stood on the threshold of taking up the cross. And the prayer is an outpouring of these passions. It is proof that Jesus was, after all, fully human 
in every sense. So being fully God way back when, they made that agreement. And it was right, and Jesus carried it out. But now he is fully human, and he is realizing the frailties of his humanity as well. In addition, this prayer of Christ unfolds the mystery of what took place in eternity past between the members of the Godhead. And as God the Father and God the Son covenanted together with the Holy Spirit to redeem the elect, it was agreed that Christ would become a man and die to pay the atoning price. And that price was huge. And you could see by the emotion that's in our Savior's voice where he was asking, is there another way? But he was willing to obey the Father's will. He said, may your will be done. And it was. So it isn't doubt that our Savior was expressing. I believe it was humanity that was expressing. So as we come forward and get the elements, I want you to just think to yourself, the magnitude of the sacrifice that Jesus did for you and I, for us to be able to celebrate at the Lord's table. He was in the garden, Sal and I were in the garden, and it's, it's like an orchard, and they made it kind of a pretty place, but it's just an orchard with a wall around it. And you could very, very easily imagine Jesus Christ with his disciples, and the disciples would be here, and he'd go off a ways over here and pray. And it is extremely easy to imagine that that could take place. And it was at or near that very spot we were at. And it, it is a holy spot like you never imagined. Because you go, that is where our Savior prayed these words. So, Paul, if we start there and then we can go to the other side, just kind of work your way around. Steve, do you have any music you can play? Okay.